So Judges 2, uh, verses 1 to 23. Let's hear God's word. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Excuse me. Then they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each one to his own inheritance to possess the land. And so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Heres, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gerash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunder, of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. 
They did not cease from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I have commanded, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. And there again is God's holy, inerrant word, and may he bless us as we put ourselves under its teaching. You know, there are a few places within Scripture that bring significant reference to the book of Judges. As I've said before already, as we've just begun this series in Judges, there's a lot in here that you read and you shudder at. It's descriptive and We don't see much in the way of faithfulness from the people of Israel. And as we move along in those judges whom God raised up, we're going to see that even there was decline in the character and the level of holiness that the judges themselves would exercise over time. And yet, the book of Judges is referenced in several other places of Scripture as a, as a instruction in how we, even in our struggles to be faithful to God, can still yet call upon the Lord for help. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> you know, in our unfaithfulness, God's ear is always ready to hear his covenant people, to seek him, to pray to him, to ask for that help that we need. You get to Psalm 83 and verses 9 to 12, where Israel, having been uh, filled with the same disobedience that is mentioned here in this chapter, and forsaking God and, and being unfaithful in their life and walk with him, even there in that Psalm of Asaph, they can still call on God to deliver them from their enemies. And in that particular psalm, Psalm 83, they look to the circumstances of Deborah and Barak. And they say, God, even as you delivered Israel in a time when your judgment and wrath was upon them because of their unfaithfulness, so now come and deal with our enemies today. Can you imagine making a prayer like that? I I would find in my own heart, I would be, oh God, I deserve everything you have. So let it be. Lord, please at least save me. (laughs) But the boldness of that prayer, it's, it's worth reading. Because they knew this, that even in their unfaithfulness, God is faithful to his promises. Isn't that what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2? Even when we are faithless, God is faithful. He cannot deny himself. And and to bring Christmas into the theme here, Isaiah 9, when it talks about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali being in great darkness, it's talking about a portion of Israel that really has, again, forsaken God and gone the way of the world. 
even them a light has shone. Even for them. And there in Isaiah 9, before it brings out that truth and promise that we know well, Isaiah 9 verse 6, that to you a child is born, to you a son is given, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. It speaks about God rising up and, and uh, of the one who is greater than Gideon, who would come and bring about a far greater victory than what Gideon did for those who were in darkness. And why again? Because God is faithful. <laughs> and again, in Hebrews 11, verses 32 to 34, it mentions men of faith. It's very interesting there. It doesn't mention Deborah, but it mentions Barak. And we're going to read about Barak in a couple chapters. And his faith was not that great. <laughs> Deborah was the woman of faith. And Deborah was the judge. And yet, Hebrews 11 says, And what shall we say of the faith of Gideon? And Barak? And Samson? And Jephthah? And, and as we read the accounts of those particular men... There was perhaps far stronger people who had a greater size of faith. And yet, though very weak in their faithfulness, they were men of faith whom God used to reflect the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. I I think when you read those things, we ought to be guarded and careful. You've heard me say this often, congregation, we have to be guarded and, and uh, uh, careful in questioning whether or not someone is a Christian. Because Christians can fall short desperately in many ways. doesn't mean we can't challenge them. As I was conversing with someone this past week uh, who was questioning the faith of another, and I simply said, look, If they say they are a Christian, then treat them as a Christian who needs to be challenged. Especially if their life is not in accordance with God's word. And they want to be counted amongst uh, the community of God, the covenant community of God. Challenge them. And I know in, in our thoughts, we can have those thoughts that they may be aren't a Christian, and that could very well be true. But challenge them, because they could be a Gideon, a Barak, a Samson, a Jephthah. They could be a Peter. You see, what Judges is showing us, and especially in these two opening chapters, Judges is revealing to us the continual struggle of God's covenant people, and thereby... Uh, in in, 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 uh, analogous to us, the church today, the continual struggle of Christ's church to be faithful in obedience, to be a people who are pursuing holiness before a spiritually dark and morally bankrupt world and to continue from one generation to the next in remembering the Lord and His grace. That is 
the ongoing struggle of Israel throughout the Old Testament and the ongoing struggle of the church in every generation. We often say that the church is always a generation away from apostasy. Why? Because we've seen it. And and that comes out in verse 10, at the end of verse 10, when the generation that had been faithful under Joshua had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Another generation of the church rose up where the gospel was missing. (laughs) We can see that today. Some of us here have left certain denominations because what happened to the gospel in those places? It disappeared. We're we're not that far off from Judges 2. And the church has always had that battle. Judges reveals that continual struggle. But what Judges also reveals for us, and it comes out here as well, is that it reveals God's long-suffering patience of his mercy and his goodness and his covenant love to his people. Israel may forget his covenant. Congregation, the church can forget God's covenant, but God doesn't. He remembers. And and we see that here in, in verse 18. Even though the Lord is the one to bring his anger, his wrath, his judgments upon his people. And he's the one that hands them over to the evil and the faithlessness of their ways. What do you read at the end of verse 18? The Lord is moved to pity by the groaning of his people from those who oppressed and harassed them. Even though those who have oppressed and harassed them were raised up by God to do that very thing, there is this compassionate, long-suffering patience of God in His mercy and goodness and covenant love where He raises up judges to come and deliver His people. And doesn't that just again bring us to Christ? (laughs) Here is the Father looking down with pity upon this world, bound in the darkness, lost in the deadness of its sin and sinfulness. And what are those three words? God so loved. He loved this world that he sent his Son so that whosoever should believe in Jesus would not perish, but have everlasting life. And and you're going to see that as as we begin to uh, meet the various judges. It's God so loving a disobedient people and sending those who represent his son to deliver them. And and again, when we come to chapters 1 and 2, what they're revealing for us, even before we're introduced to the first judge, they reveal the backdrop of the necessity 
of the judges. You read from verses 16 down to verse 19 and we see this cycle uh, happening already. It's introducing us to the cycle of judges where we see Israel falling away from God and God bringing his hand of judgment upon them to discipline them and to punish them for their forsaking of him. But God in, in compassion doing this because it would stir up in them a repentance and a renewal of their heart to seek God. And they would cry out to the Lord and then God would send a judge to deliver them. And generation after generation after generation, this is the cycle that goes on. And, and we already see that from, from Exodus up into the point of Joshua. God delivers Israel after 400 years of enslavement. He brings them out and establishes his covenant love and gospel to Israel in the death of the firstborn of Egypt and brings them up within a year to the borders of the promised land and said, here's a land I'm giving you. And what did the people do? They rejected, they rebelled against God. And what happened to that generation? They died in the desert. And then the next generation rose up, led by Joshua, brought into the promised land. And even with some of their struggles, there was a great deal of faithfulness to come into the land. But after that 30 years of Joshua leading, what do we read here? Verse 10, that generation passed away, was gathered to their fathers. Another generation rose up, did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done. You read that and you think, well, didn't Joshua and the elders communicate God to their children and to those who were raising up after them? Well, probably. How many of us have children here that we have instructed in the gospel? Taught them, brought them to church, had them underneath the ministry of God's word. Where are they? You know, the reality of Joshua, I mean, of judges can be seen not just in the church, struggling to be faithful to the Lord, can be seen even in our homes. Where do we turn? Where must we turn? And that is to God, who has raised up a deliverer, who has loved every one of his people, the Lord Jesus and who is the covenant keeper with God and who will deliver all his people from all their sins. We turn to the God who has made covenant and who is faithful to keep covenant and we rest in his promises. My friends, is that where we are as a church trusting in the Lord? Is that where you are as a parent trusting in the Lord? I remember this discussion happening, and I'm, I'm thinking this must be at least 20 years ago, when I was in, in a, uh, a small group of men who were talking about struggles with their children. And, and one man asked another man who had uh, a large family and whose children all seemed to be walking with the Lord. And he said, how is it that your children are all with the Lord? And half of my are out of the church. And 
that man said, well, it's because I did this, 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 and this. And the Lord blessed it. And the man whose children were outside of the church and in the world and not in Christ, he said, well, I've done that. You know, that man who responded in that way responded wrong. What are we told about salvation? It is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. Not of yourselves, not of the works of your hands. God is gracious. And when we see a family that all seems to be doing well, when we see a church that is prospering and and going forward with great numbers, and when we look at our situation and think, well, I've got children who aren't walking with the Lord, or we're small and we seem to be doing things right, but why? And my friends, it comes to God's grace and his faithfulness and trusting in the one who has made promise to bless his, his son's gospel in the lives of people and to bless his church and bring forth that increase as he sees and what needs to be guarded. And this is, this is where Israel continued to go wrong. And this is where the church can go wrong. Is we need to guard against two things. We need to guard against our disobedience. And we need to guard against unfaithfulness. And, and you may think, well, that, that sounds very straightforward. We already know those things. But my friends, do you know how much harder it is to continue in Faith and obedience to God when things don't seem to be working out. Because where does our mind go? Where do our thoughts go when things don't seem to be working out? Well, I must be doing something wrong. I should change what I'm doing. Well, that could very well be the case. And there is a level of humility that must meet us in our homes and in our church to recognize we may have done things wrong. Obviously, we may have carried a wrong tone and sensitivity toward our children. We may be rigid and strict within our church setting that does not present ourselves as winsome and friendly. We can be doing things right in a wrong way. We can be unfaithful in other ways. What we are dependent upon is not just obedience and not just faithfulness, but faithful obedience and trusting the Lord to do his good work in his ways. You look at Israel's disobedience here in verses 1 to 5. It's very state, it's very stated so very clearly here. The angel of the Lord, a theophany, appears to Israel at this place called Bakim, which means a place of weeping. And the angel of the Lord charges Israel for her disobedience in keeping covenant with God. He looks at them and he says, look what, look what they did. They stepped out of the bounds of of their relationship with the nations around them and directly disobeyed God. 
And, and when you, again, get to verse 10 and you see that there is a generation who does not know the Lord nor the work which he did for Israel. What, what he's saying is here, here is a generation that has lost sight of God and lost sight of Christ and his gospel. But it is what happened because of their disobedience. What Israel began to do was something that God directly warned them against. They be, became unequally yoked with the nations around them. Verse 2, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Well, it's easier to get along with the nations if we have these relationships with them. It's easier to get along with the world when we become like them. Do you know what gets sacrificed when we fall into this snare of aligning ourselves, whether it's through marriage or business arrangements or joining forces to stand against something? Do you know what gets sacrificed? Is our zeal for the holiness of God. Our zeal for that holiness to which we are called. This is the same thing that Paul brought up in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to, to 18, when he says, O Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections. You're following your heart. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. You're my people. I want to dwell in the midst of my people. Come out from them. Be separate. Do not touch with what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my children and daughters, says the Lord. Therefore, having those promises of God that you will be his people, he will dwell amongst you. He will be a father to you. You will be his sons and daughters. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You know, Israel's struggle here is the same as the church today, holiness. Being God's particular, special, covenant people who shine as lights in the world that is darkened by sin. And when we in disobedience to God, align ourselves with the world or build up these friendships with people who have no love for God or the kingdom of God. My friends, however many times we may hear the stories of those unequally yoked alliances where somebody comes to faith, you will hear nine other stories. Christians who have fallen away. 
It's disobedience. Yet we do it. Not only those unequally yoked, that they transgress God's commandments, particularly when it comes to worship. You know, I did that series on worship last month. I don't think the church today realizes how essential true and spiritual worship is. And you look at how Israel disobeyed God and transgressing the commandments here in this chapter. And in, in, in verse 2, uh, he di- comes directly to the issue of worship and the altars that they have allowed to remain in the land. And you get down to verse 13, and it's that same issue again. They forsook the Lord and served Baal in the asterisks. And verse 18, it's brought up again. And uh, 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 Sorry, verse 17, where they bowed down to them and played the harlot. They disobeyed the commandments of the Lord. They worshiped. Styles of worship, how we treat the worship of God is something that marks us very distinct in this world, brings forth the light of God. We have what we call today these worship wars (laughs) where people are more interested to know whether you have traditional worship or contemporary worship Uh, what you do uh, with the sacraments or uh, what your church style is like. And what gets lost in all of that discussion of worship is what does God want? What does God want in worship? Both the elements of worship but also the heart of worship. And and if being unequally yoked and disobeying God's commandment worked enough, their disobedience was shown in their unwillingness to heed God's word. You get to verse 17 and 20 in this chapter, and you see this is an ongoing problem within the life of Israel, and it began right after Joshua. They would not listen to their judges. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walk in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges from them, they would not listen. You get down to verse 20. This nation has transgressed my covenant, which I have commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice. (laughs) Even as God worked, to discipline and deliver and lead Israel. They resisted his word time and again, and they reverted. And even in verse 19, it's as it goes on, their, their transgressions against God's covenant became worse and worse and worse. They wouldn't hear his voice. It's interesting. In King Ahab's time, in 2 Kings uh, verses, uh, chapters uh, 17 and 18, I believe it is, where good king Jehoiakim in Judah came and allied himself with King Ahab and they were going out to attack the Philistines and, and uh, way, uh, Ahab asked Je- Jehoiakim to come alongside him and help and Jehoiakim said, well, let's 
Check with God. Let's call upon the Lord to see if this is his will. And, and all of these prophets were brought in. Ahab's prophets. And they all came in and they said, yes, go up. God will give you the victory. One came in with a set of horns and said, even as these horns would gore its enemies, so you will defeat your enemies. And Jehoiakim could look at all these prophets and he could say, is there not a prophet of the Lord here that can speak the truth to us? And they go out and they find Micaiah who comes in and who speaks the truth, who deals very sarcastically with the prophets of Ahab and speaks the truth and says, no, the Lord is not with you when you go up. What did Jehoiakim do? He went with Ahab. He could hear the word of the prophet of God and still disobey because his heart was set more on appeasing and appealing the world around him than it was on following God's word. The church struggles to obey. And what is behind this? It's their un. Faithfulness. What is unfaithfulness? The lack of belief and trust in the Lord. But the depth of their disobedience in being unequally yoked, disobeying clear commands, not heeding God's word, the depth of this disobedience uncovers the motives and attitudes of their hearts and minds. It reveals their unfaithfulness that they lacked true, sincere faith in their God. Their hearts, you see it here, their hearts were stubborn against God. Verse 19, they did not cease from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. No, it is hard enough when you are talking to unbelievers and trying to reach their heart with the word of God. When you talk with Christians and you can say to them, let's just take this as an example. You can say to them, and show them in scripture how the Lord's day is holy. And they'll look at you and say, you're a what? You're a legalist. A legalist. When your desire is to worship the Lord and keep his day holy. But there is a stubbornness even within the hearts of those who are covenant people. We know that's the one thing God continued to say about Israel in their unfaithfulness. They were a stiff-necked people. It didn't matter how many judges or prophets or even how many theophanies met them. They were stubborn to the will of their own heart. I will follow my heart. And they forget what Proverbs, <laughs> what Proverbs 3 5 to 7 says. I know we know Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he shall direct your paths. And we know those two verses very well. And we know those verses are telling us. That how does the Lord direct your paths? He does it with, your, with his word. He, he has his word given to you. To help you understand the way forward. But. We should always put verse 7 with it. Because what does verse 7 say? <laughs> Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. 
and depart from evil. That is Israel's struggle. Their unfaithfulness was rooted in this stubbornness of heart. But you read, it's also rooted in that their minds were not set upon the Lord. Again to verse 10 and verse 13. You read verse 13. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Asterisk. And verse 10, another generation did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Do we think that this is just blind ignorance that they were never taught? Of course they were taught. But their mind was not set on what the Lord had done for them. Their mind was not set on what the Lord had accomplished for them in making them his holy nation. His deliverance no longer thrilled their heart. God, that's what you did way back then, two generations ago, 80 years ago. Yes, you delivered us from Egypt. What are you doing for us now? Do you realize how hard it was for us to take this land? What are you doing for us now? Their minds no longer delighted in the grace of the Lord. God was no longer awesome and holy to them. Even when his anger met them, even when they were disciplined, it, it, it took the mighty work of God to break them where they would see his awesomeness and reverence him. But even more, you, you see the stubborn hearts, you see their minds not set on the Lord. One other thing that really stands out is their repentance. How their repentance lacks sincerity. I know we're always striving, are we not, dear people, when, when we're offended and we approach someone and we're looking for repentance, we're always striving to see what? True repentance. We always define repentance with true or real repentance. And it is an issue. It's interesting enough that when the Lord tells us uh, that we can't see their heart, that if somebody does repent, even seven times in a day, seven times you shall, what? Forgive them. Don't know about you, but after that third time, I've turned all the cheeks I can turn. <laughs> what do you do? Do you look here? And, and you see that, that even from the beginning in verses 1 to 5, when, when the theophany appears to them and God charges them with their unfaithfulness, they have these tears, don't they? They wept, verse 4, they lifted up their voices and wept. They called that place Bokim, which means literally a place of weeping. But you get to verse 13, and they forsook the Lord and served the Baals and Asterisks. And verse 15, and God brings out his hand against them, and they're greatly distressed. And you get down to verse 18, and the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of all who oppressed and, and harassed them. God moves, and, and they revert, but then they turn right back to those things again. Repentance. And God honored whatever repentance that they gave him. That's the remarkable thing to look in Judges. When the people 
were distressed and they cried out to God and said, God, we're really sorry for forsaking you. We're turning back to you. Will you help us? What did what do we read in Judges? He did. He did exactly what the Lord tells us we are to do. If they come to you seven times, even 70 times seven, forgive them. And God did. Isn't that remarkable? But God even says this, that Israel can in no way blame God for their state. Isaiah 65, 2. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walked in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts of people who provoked me to anger continually before my face. Now, I read that verse to you. What do you remember of that verse? Isaiah 65, 2. A rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. A people who provoke me to anger continually before my face. I'm sure we're all able to look at churches and people and think, yes, I see that. But I want to leave you with this. How did that, how did that verse begin? Isaiah 65, 2. Do you remember? I have stretched out my hands all day long. And I think that's one of the most remarkable things about the book of Judges. Is that what Israel may not see with their eyes, but what God wants us to see from his word with our hearts and faith. Is here's a God with his arms stretched out all day long. Who are rebellious people. Isn't that amazing? My friends, his arms are stretched out all day long to us. That's the God of the book of Judges. You know, generational degeneration continues today. But what also continues is Christ. Is Christ the greater of all of these judges who sits enthroned in heaven and who is faithfully every day interceding for his people that their faith should not fail? I'll use Peter as an example. We'll use him as an example often in this series. But you remember Peter on the eve of Christ's crucifixion He thought he would be able to stand with God. He thought he would not fail Christ. He was determined in his own heart to stand with Christ even unto death. And when the hour of trial came, what happened to his faith? Friends, take heed, you who think you stand, lest you fall. And he fell. And Jesus even told him he would fall. But you remember those words of Christ to him. Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you are returned, strengthen your brothers. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, and I said to Satan, no. (laughs) Peter was sifted. Judas was sifted. Why did Peter 
Why did Peter's faith not fail? Because Christ was interceding. All day long, my hands are stretched out to my people. My friends, it's always going to be the faithfulness of our God that will meet us in our disobedience, in our unfaithfulness. It doesn't excuse our disobedience. It doesn't excuse our unfaithfulness. But it does show us that God is faithful in what he has promised. And what is for us is to be ever aware of our own propensities to strain, to search our hearts, to see those wicked ways that are within us and to turn to the Lord for help, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. My friends, the promise is still true today, today that the one who cries out in the name of Jesus, the one who turns to God in Christ, will never be cast out. Isn't that grand? He will be met with a forgiving and gracious God who will restore. Praise the Lord.